we're uh, getting started a little bit late, and I assume that's all your fault. So, um, <laughs> well, chapter 8 is uh, the chapter, uh, as you know, or at least I hope you know, we're in the uh, section in the introductory chapters of Genesis 1 through 11, I would kind of regard as the introductory chapters, and um, we're uh, halfway through the section dealing with the flood, starting in Genesis 6 and 7, which we've already covered. I want to remind you, and this is an important point, it's obviously, I guess, a self-evident point, but for many, it's, uh, it's an important one to review. The Bible presents the flood as a moral and ethical issue. In other words, God sends his, uh, and I don't know of any other word, but judgment, God sends his judgment on his uh, creation um, for moral and ethical reasons. And we saw that at the very beginning of chapter 6. That case is very strongly laid out. And I say that again because there are many, many, many accounts of the flood coming out of the ancient world. I mean, almost every civilization in the ancient world, including early Native American civilizations, have an account of the flood in their heritage, myths, legends, or whatever you want to call it. And every single one of them presents the flood as a kind of a casual, capricious, very shallow reason that the gods, and it's almost always gods, polytheistic culture, are judging or sending the flood. The most famous one is the Gilgamesh epic, which is from ancient Babylonia. And the reason the gods send the flood is because the humans were making too much noise, which is hardly an ethical reason. You know, I mean, that's, that just shows the, a temper tantrum of the deities, you know, and they're kind of upset. That is not how the, the Bible presents the flood. And I'm saying it because that is a very, very important tenet to keep holding on to. The Bible presents God as a moral character who has intellect, emotion, and will. He is a creator, and he sets the ethical standards for his creation because they are the best for his creation. And if creation decides to defy that, then he has every right to call that creation to account, which is what he does. The other thing to remind you of, and we're going to see that here, particularly in chapter 8, is the theme of recreation. The theme of recreation is a major theme throughout the Bible. And here we see God who has, let's just be blunt, destroyed all life except the life that's preserved on the ark and is about to start over again. And he starts over not in you know, creating ex nihilo, creating out of nothing, but he's going to recreate, restate all his commands, restate all his ethical standards, and say to, uh, to uh, Noah and his family, uh, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. The same thing he said in Genesis 1 and 2, he's going to say to Noah and his family. So this theme of recreation. Now that's a quick summary. You with me? Yes. Um, I, we asked, or I asked the question last time about <clears throat> a civilization that wasn't on the ark and they perished. And um, all of those people, um, I mean, there were babies at the time, I would, wouldn't you think, Jim? That no reason why. Those were innocent uh, lives that actually were, were redeemed by reason of the termination of their early life before they came to reason, would you say? But I, I'm not trying to create any shadows here at all. I'm just Sure you are. No. <laughs> I just no. want to know, I guess. Um, 
I did. Did you ever? Did everyone understand Fred's question? Did you understand what he's asking? Um, in effect, that there, and I would see no reason why that wouldn't be true. That many of those who perished as a result of the flood were infants, babies, very young children. And although he didn't direct it that way as a question, let's just pose it as a question: What happened to them? They had no. Res- they had no ability, capacity, or opportunity simply because of, of their age, et cetera, to respond to God. So um, he's raising a question which people have discussed and debated and thought about for thousands of years. The rabbis that talked about this before Christ and then after Christ, it just becomes a major, major issue of discussion. Um, my view on this uh, is that God is a God who is just. God is a God who is fair. God is a God who is gracious. God is a God who is merciful. And because of that, and then because of the finished work of his son, death, burial, and resurrection, in his grace, he is able to accept those who never had a chance to believe into his heaven. <clears throat> Can I prove that? Not necessarily. There are two passages that are often used in Second Samuel chapter 12. I don't remember the exact verse, but David is mourning uh, and pleading with God, I shouldn't say mourning, he's pleading with God for his son, uh, his son, uh, the one that was born to Bathsheba as a result of his adultery with her. And he's pleading with God to spare the life of his son who has been born and who is, uh, in effect, dying. And God chooses not to answer that prayer, and the son dies. And then David uh, gets up, uh, cleans himself up, has food, and his servants say, before before your son died, you were pleading and you were fasting and you were praying. Now, he said, well, God's answered my prayer, but I do know one thing, I will go to be with him. And so there's the controversy, does that mean I'll go to be with him, meaning I'll die too, or does he mean that I will see my son again? You can't, the language you can't you can't be definitive, but it certainly seems reasonable that David has the concept of God. You see that in all his psalms, that God's grace and mercy will be so significant that he knows his baby of a few days old, his son of a few days old, is with God and he'll go see him. The other point that is often used is in the book of Revelation, thinking of Revelation 4, 5, 21, etc., those passages where you see the multitudes worshiping the Lord uh, at the throne. And it says, those from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Well, okay, you have to have every nation, every tribe. That means throughout all of history. And there are parts of the world which would never have necessarily had a chance to respond. But yet, if children, infants, babies, even fetuses, die, um, and God accepts them into his heaven because of the completed work of his son. That could be an explanation of how that could have meaning. In other words, literal meaning. So as far as Gump said 21 years ago, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs)
which not into the text. And Fred has wasted. No, he hasn't wasted. <laughs> good, it was a very good question. Verse 1, we are, did a little bit of this last week, but let's just um, start there again real quickly. But God remembered Noah. And I stressed that last week, and if you weren't here, I want to stress it. If you, this, this is a covenant term. It doesn't mean, oh, God had forgotten about it. Oh, my goodness. Now, how many weeks has it been? How many months has it been? Oh, no, that's not the right way. It, it's a covenant term. It means that God remembers the covenantal promise he made to Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. I told you last week that word wind is ruach in Hebrew, which is, just in case, over there. Oh, okay. Well, there's some there. right there. Just to the right. Oh, here they are. Oh, thank you. Ruach, which is used both in the Hebrew Old Testament for wind, but also for spirit. So as this isn't an original thought with me, what, what is going on here is a word play. That God is sending the wind to dry up the earth after the flood, but that wind is also the manifestation of the Spirit. As we go back to Genesis 1, verse 2, and the Spirit is hovering over the chaos as God is about to recreate. So it's that same idea, that the Spirit is now at work. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wants, but you don't see the wind, and he immediately says, and the Spirit. Now, I maybe have lost you there. But Nicodemus is trying to figure out what Jesus means by being born again. And Jesus does exactly the same thing. He does the wordplay between wind and spirit. And that's just an interesting literary device. I probably lost you, so forget it. But it's, it's an interesting point because the fountains of the deep, verse 2, and the windows of the heavens were closed. Now, that's a reminder that the source of the water that destroyed the earth came from above, rain, but also all of the tectonic plates are splitting open. This is a massive, chaotic reorientation of planet Earth. That sentence, does that make sense to you? I mean, this is a massive, a massive reorientation of the topography of planet Earth. The rain from the heavens was restrained. The waters receded from the Earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest. Now, I want you to note that again, how specific the Bible is being. It doesn't give you a general day. It doesn't give you a general year. Oh, and about the third, no. It's an exact year, exact number of days, and the precise month. It landed, came to rest on the mount of Ararat. Now, Ararat is a mountain chain. It's not one mountain. It's a mountain chain that for us in our country today would be in eastern Turkey, the very eastern end of modern-day country of Turkey, up into the Caucasus area. So, I mean, it's a large. So it, it's hard to say we know exactly what mountain peak it landed on. But you would assume 
it's going to be one of the higher peaks in the mountain range. So when you start narrowing it down that, there are one or two or three possibilities. And there's some people who believe there's a Korean group that said we found the ark. They haven't produced any evidence, but they said we found the ark. So we'll, we'll leave that where it's lying. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, in the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, sent forth a raven. It went to and from until the waters were dried up in the earth. Then he sent forth a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the earth. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still in the face of the whole of the earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark. Verse 10, he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, on her mouth was a freshly plucked olive tree. So Noah knew that the water subsided from the earth. Verse 12, then he waited another seven days, sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Now, very, very precise, very, very specific. Verse 13, in the sixth hundred and first year in the first month the first day of the month the waters were dried off from the earth so the 601st year of Noah's life in the first month the first day of that month they're going to leave the ark you know remove the covering of the ark and look and behold the face of the ground was dry in the second month on the 27th day the earth was dried out and God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you, your wife, your sons, their sons' wives. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps in the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That is exactly the same thing that we saw in Genesis chapter 1. Recreation theme. God starting over again. Same command. Okay, the earth has been cleansed. Now he's starting over. Every creep, a great beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves in the earth went out by families from the ark. Now, I read through that quickly, and I hope that was okay. I mean, there isn't anything terribly profound there, except you see, and this is important, how precise the Bible is on the days and identifying the specific days in which these things occur. There is nothing like that coming out of the ancient world. This kind of precision you do not find in any other document coming out of the ancient world. And the Bible is like that throughout in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Bible is very precise and enabling you to link what is happening and what God is saying through a prophet or whatever with some other event. I mean, it's just very important. The Bible is very precise, and that, that is another one of the many, many, many arguments you can make for the accuracy of the Bible. Um, the animals and all the animals that were in the ark, do you think they were hibernating during that whole time period? I mean, they're trying to feed all those animals. I heard somebody said maybe they were hibernating. I don't think, I mean, that's a good question, Tom. I don't think we have enough information from yeah. the Bible to reach that conclusion. Uh, yeah. We learned earlier um, when, when they were preparing the ark and so on, that God instructed him to take an adequate amount of food. I mean, yeah. and so that would have been significant. But whether that would not be unreasonable for some animals, some animals do by their nature hibernate, but I, I don't think we have enough information to say that. It's a possibility. They're one of the, that's one of the things when you preach that, you pound the table real hard because 
you just want to convince people this may be it, while your emotions and pounding the table, they'll convince you're right. No, that was a joke. That's what pastors say. Forget it. Okay. Now, verse, verse 20 is really an important verse in this narrative. As a matter of fact, the next several verses, the rest of this chapter and so on, are, they're very, very important because of the things that God is going to say. Again, this confirms the moral and ethical nature of what God has just done. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the clean animal and some of the clean birds and burnt, offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, we had read earlier that God had instructed Noah to take clean animals on the ark for very specific reasons. This is the reason, to offer the sacrifices. So th- what does that mean again? Clean Clean. Not just as clean as we understand it? Not, not as clean as not being dirty or whatever, you know, uh, so on. Clean, and that's really, that's a great question, Woody, because at this point in the scriptures, clean is not defined. Clean will be defined as, as you get into Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. It'll be very specific. The types of animals that are clean and the types of animals that are unclean. So most expositors simply conclude that what the Bible declares clean to be, say, for example, in Leviticus, where there's a long discourse on what the kosher animals are acceptable. The pig is not a kosher animal. So we would assume that a pig is still not a clean animal. So that would not be one of the clean animals. That, that's the only way I can answer that. The, it, the way clean is defined later on in the scriptures is how this would be defined at this point, even though we don't have any record at this point of God defining what clean means. Did I lose you? No, you didn't. But uh, as, as I think about it, we still have pigs on earth, and he was only supposed to take clean animals on the ark. No, 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 no. He took all animals, but God asked him to take extra clean animals. Yeah, seven pairs for this reason. We're inferring. It doesn't, but infer that for the purposes of the sacrifices. Uh, It's, well, anyway, I was going to tell a story, but I'm not going to tell the story. Okay, (laughs) so that's the best I can do with that. Verse 21, and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. When the earth, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Two things here. Two very important points in these last couple of verses. Well, three, really. One is a reminder of the moral, ethical reason God did this. But two, the second thing, is God makes a promise. Did you see that? He makes an unconditional, eternal promise. I will never do this again. I will never wipe out everything on planet Earth like this again. Destroy it all with, I will not do that again. And thirdly, he says, I'm restoring the order to my world. Where there had been disorder and chaos, 
I'm restoring order to my world. Seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night. That's the order, predictable patterns of God's world. I'm restoring that. So you have the recreation theme. You have the moral, ethical theme of why God does, and God is restoring the order, the predictability, and framing it all with a promise. I will not do this again. And, and also, the last part of 21, it validates that, that every inclination of his heart mm. is evil from childhood. Yeah. So, I mean, we're all born with yes. that evil. Yes, that's evil. right. Even That's right. Even after the even after this flood and judgment, God is still recognizing humanity has a problem, and, it, and, and that's important. Woody, I'm glad you pointed that out because God is going to see in chapter nine. This is a very profound statement that the flood and judgment didn't cure man of his problem. The same problems to exist. And so that, I mean, you're going to see that in, 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 as we get into chapter 9. Um, it says that uh, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Um, <clears throat> this world will not stand eternally, right? Uh, What's the new heaven and new earth then? What's that? What's the new heaven and new earth then? Well, that's part of my question, oh. not where I get lost. I'm well, I mean, God, God, and that's another um, little bunny trail there, but what we do know from Isaiah 65 and 66 and Revelation 21 and 22, that God is going to restore the Garden of Eden-type world that Adam lost. He's going to restore that in the new heaven and new earth. The question that, and that question really comes out of what's in 2 Peter 3, but the question is, how's God going to do that? Um, is he going to completely incinerate everything, destroy everything, and ex nihilo, create everything new? Or is he going to cleanse it with fire and cleanse the earth again? And you know, then that becomes the, the new heaven and new earth. Etc. So, Fred, I think what the Bible encourages, now some of you may be lost from his question, but what the Bible encourages us to do, Fred, it seems to me, is see a continuity between earth as it is now and the new earth. There's a continuity. I, I don't know if you understand, but there's also a discontinuity. The discontinuity is there'll be absolutely no sin, no evil, everything would be perfect. The continuity is it's still going to be the same earth, same animals, same humans, but they're cleansed, they're regenerated, they have new, new resurrected, glorified bodies. And there is nothing in the scriptures at all that discourages us from thinking that there won't be animals on the new earth, which that would almost make, why wouldn't there be? If the early, if the original creation of God had animals, but the disorder, you're going to see that in Acts chapter 9, the disorder and dysfunctional nature of the world that resulted from man's sin will be gone. And the earth will reach a level of productivity that is never known. And David will build buildings that are absolutely perfect that will last forever. 
They will never deteriorate. Don't, don't you build buildings, Dave? I thought so. <laughs> and so in the new heaven and new earth, if you want to, you'll still be building buildings, but they will last forever. So, so, right. so what happened to Satan during the flood? Well, um, since he's a spirit being, he didn't get wet. So he's, uh, he's you know, still in his rebellious, uh, his rebellious state. And uh, his men... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He he shows up right away. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Where was Satan during the flood? That's a good question. But <laughs> chapter nine is uh, I want to I want to develop chapter nine, uh, and it's in your notes too. But I, I want you to see the new order. <coughs> That God establishes. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different than Genesis 3. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That should sound familiar. That's exactly what he had said to Adam and, and his descendants. So remember, everything has been destroyed. Now the earth needs to be repopulated. Verse 2. This is a change. This is a very significant change. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are all delivered. Now, do, do you see? That's a change. Because the rebellion that we saw in Genesis 3 and the curse that God gave to the planet is exacerbated here. Where there had been peace and harmony in the pre-fall world before Genesis 3. And then there is the curse on all of God's... It is intensified here. Instead of there being harmony between humanity and all of God's creatures, what is there? There's a reign of terror. I made that up, a reign of terror. But it's, in other words, it's not harmony. It's disharmony, fear, and dread. There is a huge gap. My metaphor might work. A huge gap between humanity and all other living creatures. And what humanity is going to do as the dominion stewards of God's world, instead of that harmony and cooperative, peaceful, it's just the opposite. There's fear and dread of all the animals. That's true. I mean, you go, you go into a forest, the animals don't, what, well, come on in! You have your shotgun, come on in! The pheasants, no! I mean, they run from you. If you're hunting deer, the deer don't walk up to you. Well, sometimes they do, but most of the time, I mean, they're running away from you. The only exception seems to be squirrels. <laughs> yeah. When I was a young teenager, a friend of mine and I used to go out, and we, what we called was sit for squirrels. Yeah. And you, you, know, you find a tree, you, you know, take your shotgun and sit there and be perfectly still, and 
About 15, 20 minutes, these stupid squirrels start scooting down the trees and they sit and look and they're about a th- from here to Joe and I just go like this and you know, I get four, five, six in an afternoon because of these stupid squirrels. They don't run from you. They, they're curious and they want to find out who you are and they think they're, <clears throat> well, I don't like squirrels, so I won't talk any more about them. It sounds but, like your hatred of squirrels started very early in life. Yeah, it did. It did. It was... Uh, it didn't, didn't take me long to reach the conclusion that squirrels are rat with a bushy tail, and I don't understand why God created them. Therefore, I'm going to help make them an, a, you know, a, complete, a completely devastated species. Does that make you a terrorist? Though? Yes, I'm a terrorist. I'm part of verse 2. <laughs> now, I'm, uh, there's a lot of humor there. But the, the, this, is, this is really, really important that you see because of the curse— now, there's fear and dread within God's world, not harmony. And then number the second change is in verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now, th- this seems to be the logical conclusion. Before the flood, humanity, they were vegetarians. After the flood, they're carnivorous. Do you understand what I mean by that? That seems to be what it's saying. But God says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Here or at something that will be central, central to the Mosaic law. You never eat the blood of an animal, drink the blood. You, you never, you know, that's why if, if you, you like your steaks rare, you might want to read this verse. No, I'm just kidding. That, that's, not the, that's not the point. But God will elaborate on this. God will elaborate on this issue of blood coming up. But even early on. So you have two changes. There's now dread and fear in God's world, and now humanity is carnivorous. Now the third change is in verse 6, sorry, verse 5 and 6. And for your life, bread, I will require reckoning. For every beast, I will require it. And for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, there's two things. I'm going to write this on the board here. This is, this is an important concept that is all through the Bible. <clears throat> God is instituting, now I'm going to use, that's part of the disorder. (laughs) What God is instituting here, this is from a Latin word, but it's it's very strong because that's the point. God is instituting a system of justice into his world. We did not see this before Genesis 9, but we see it here. And this becomes a principle of, it's called talionic justice. It is all through the Bible. And the New Testament, it's everywhere. It is summarized in the Old Testament uh, Mosaic Covenant as an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And I'm sure everybody's heard that. That's, but that's, that's an illustration. This is the point. For every evil act you do, you're accountable for that. This is a universe that's based on justice. This is a universe which means, a world, in other words, you cannot defy God's moral law with impunity. 
God will hold you accountable. And it is summarized, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. That is capital punishment. Now, I'm not defending capital punishment. I'm just saying because you would know that phrase. The second thing I want you to notice, <coughs> excuse me, is the reason for this. You see that? It's the very last phrase of verse 6. For God made man in his image. Why, why are you accountable if in a premeditated way you take the life of a human being, you lose your right to live? Why? Because God made humanity in his image. What's the inference to draw from that? You are killing someone. You, you, that's exactly right. You are defying the goodness and purposefulness of God. He created that human being in his image, and you are taking that life. So you are defying something that God did, willfully and intentionally. And that is biblically, again, not talking about how the United States does it or any other nation does it, but biblically, this is a starting point for making a defense of capital punishment. That if someone in a premeditated fashion takes the life of a human being, justice demands, Italian justice, the system of justice in the Bible that God establishes, demands that you make payment for that. Now, today, that is very controversial, and it's hard. I mean, the United States of America, as you know, with the exception of certain terrorist acts and assassination of a president, the state carry out all of the judgments for premeditated murder. Premeditated murder is not a national law. That's state functions, and every state has a different set of standards for that. So it's going to be really hard to defend historically how the United States has practiced capital punishment. That's not what I'm doing. All I'm saying is biblically, there is a basis for justifying capital punishment. And so it, it affirms something else that I think is really important. God just destroyed all human life in the flood. And so as Noah and his family get off the ark and as the subsequent generations come along that could say, you know, God changed things. He said he created humans in his image. And that gives worth and value. Maybe because he wiped everybody out, he changed. God is reaffirming. I didn't change anything. He's reaffirming the innate worth and value of human beings. Don't think things have changed morally and ethically. They have not. And he's reaffirming the value and worth of humanity, and he's introducing something that you don't see in the first chapters of Genesis. But here you do. It is responsible, it is your responsibility, humans, to construct a system of justice based on this principle. Do you understand what I just said? God is putting this responsibility now, because verse 5 and verse 6, God is laying down the principle of justice. And he's saying, in effect, it is now your responsibility to enforce this principle. And what will happen through history is the state will be instituted, and I'm not talking about any particular state, but a state will be instituted, those governmental structures will be instituted to carry out this principle of justice. The Bible affirms over and over and over again that the primary role of government, the primary role of the state, is to promote justice and thwart evil to enforce the justice of God. 
And when a society does that, it will experience the common grace blessings of God. When a society does not do that, you will see manifested the disorder and dysfunction and chaos of, of not following God's system of justice. And the heart of it is humans are image bearers of God. They're of worth and value. So this concept of talionic justice yes. permeates our court system. That's the objective of the court system when there's controversy, whether it's civil or criminal cases, is to provide justice. It's not revenge. It's not uh, payback. It's, it's a balance of That's right. justice. Yeah. It, I mean, ideally, you said it permeates. I, I don't know if it... Ideally, it should permeate sure. the court system and, um, you know, if you will, the policing system of, of, of the modern state or in any period of history. It is the role of the state to not be the agent of vengeance, not be the agent of revenge, but to be the promoter of justice. And that's why through history, and it's, again, it's very much in the Bible... God makes it very clear early on. Don't just accuse somebody of something. There has to be at least two or three witnesses. I mean, there are due process procedures laid out very early in the Bible to make sure that justice is done. But I hope you see this. God, God's made three changes here. There's now a reign of terror in his creation. There's a huge gap between humanity and every other living thing. Number two, humans are now apparently, we're to conclude, now have the pernition to be carnivorous. They eat meat, and they now can eat Omaha steaks, big thick ones. And the th- that's supposed to be a joke, but nobody's laughing. And the third one is this, he's instituting a system of justice. And so, I mean, it's really, really an important point. Well, all three of those are really important. That's the new order of things that God is instituting. And the rest of the scriptures, you will just see these things unfold. But then you also see the promise, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. When I will be with you, I will walk with you. And I will put my law in your hearts. And you will walk with me in loving fellowship for all eternity. Amen. Okay? Any questions? Now, God makes another promise here. It's a very, it's a covenant. The word covenant is used. You see in verse 7, you be fruitful, multiply, team the earth, multiply it. Same command. We see it over and over again. Okay, judgment's over. Now fill the earth. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, verse 9, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature there is, the birds, the livestock, every beast, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's God's promise. I will never again destroy the earth by a flood. This is the sign of the covenant that I make. And you know what that is between me, you, and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. What do we call that bow in the cloud? A rainbow. May I make a comment here? (laughs) 
as if I'm asking your permission. I'm going to make a comment. Well, should we vote? <laughs> That's a rhetorical device. Too. Every covenant God makes in the Bible has a sign to it. Can you go through them with me? What's the sign of the Noahic covenant? The rainbow. What's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. What's the sign of the Mosaic covenant? The Sabbath. What's the sign of the new covenant? The cross? No. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. Isn't that cool? That'll be on the quiz next Wednesday. Can you itemize each sign in God's covenant? And say, I see no reason. I see no reason why when you and I, you know, on a rainy afternoon or something, it's usually when the sun comes out, you see you see a rainbow. And a number of times I've been in Israel, I've seen a rainbow all across Galilee. That is really cool to see that. I mean, that is really neat. Because Israel isn't very wide. It's not a wide country at all. But I'm saying all that because I don't see any reason why when you see a rainbow, you shouldn't think that reminds me of a promise God made. That's, you, you, well, you're just making that up. No, that's what verse 13. Yeah. It's a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I will never again destroy life by means of a flood. <laughs> Universal, catastrophic, cataclysmic flood that destroys everything. I, never, I will not do, ever do that again. And so every time we see that, we are to remember God made a promise. And so every time Noah saw one, his son saw one, all their descendants saw one, that's what they were to remember. And so I, you know, it's it's an important it's an important reminder that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And one other point about the Mosaic, or excuse me, the Noahic covenant covenant God made here with Noah and his descendants and all of us, is it's an unconditional covenant and it's a unilateral covenant. It's not conditioned on anything. It's not conditioned on obedience. It's just God is saying, it's not, you know, Noah, come here. You and I, let's let's cut this covenant. You agree to do something, I agree. No, 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 God just declares, I am promising I'll never do this. So it's unconditional, it's unilateral. And that's important. Sometimes God makes promises that are conditional, but this isn't. And so you have this magnificent demonstration of God's grace. You really do. He is saying, I am making you a promise. I don't have to make this promise. You certainly didn't earn this promise, but I'm making this promise. And I'm going to give you a sign. It's the rainbow. And every time you see it, it should cause you to remember that I will never do this again. And so the rest of the, the chapter before we get to verse 18, when you bring clouds over the earth and the bow seen in the clouds, I remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I see it. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You know, do you see how many times God repeated this? He just, it's repetitive. He just keeps saying the same thing. Driving home the point, I made a promise. There's a very, very good book out there that a thesis of that book is got a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. All right. Now we're almost done with the material in the flood, but there's one more point. 
and I'm not sure we can get through it, but we're going to give it a shot. Any questions? Everybody with what the text is trying to do here? Joe? I, uh, it seems like a wild question, but I held off a few chapters to see if we would resolve this. Way back at the beginning of chapter 7, uh, when we were talking about the animals aboard the ark, talked about the uh, pair of every kind and extras of the clean, the clean animals. Clean animals. Mm-hmm. Also mentioned seven of every kind of bird. I don't think we have resolved that yet, mm-hmm. or is it still coming? Uh, it is not coming. I'm not sure. Part of it, some suggest, is he sent out several birds to test the uh, um, whether the waters completely receded. That may have been part of it, but also most types of birds are clean and can be used in sacrifices. And so I'm thinking it has more to do with that than the number of birds he's going to send out to test of the waters. Almost all birds are clean animals. And uh, fast forward, as you get into the Mosaic Law and so on, those who are economically poor, instead of offering a burnt offering of an animal, can offer the burnt offering of a bird because it's much less expensive to purchase that. Presumably, Mary and Joseph did that when they went up to the temple when Jesus was a young child. The unclean birds were the ones that ate flesh, right? Yeah, the scavengers, scavengers, yeah, that's right. But most birds are are clean animals, but some, like a crow or a buzzard, probably wouldn't be clean. There. Yeah, yeah. Why did people live longer then? Is there... Moses' definition of the year, is it different? I don't see any reason to conclude that, no. Because God says in Genesis 1, when he creates and reiterates it again, time is tied to the seasons, and the seasons don't change. I mean, which means the revolution of the earth and the rotation of the earth, both it's moving around the sun as well, it's rotation on its axis. Those things, God says that, that's going to how you determine time. That's a day, that's a month. It's a year and so on. That doesn't change. Your question is a, is a problematic one because the Bible does not specifically answer that question. But the Bible does seem to indicate that once you get past the flood and, and that generation, lived, then by the time you're at Abraham, the age of humanity in terms of how long they live has demonstrably decreased. Abraham is still going to live to be 175, I think, if I'm not mistaken, which today is still very old, but compared to the other. The second thing is now we're getting to a point where we're drawing inferences. So I'm just not sure we, we know enough. But there are several individuals right now that are doing significant genetic studies and part of what they're trying to determine, it's going to be very, I'm not sure they'll be able to prove it, but um, what the Bible calls sin, these genetic researchers aren't calling this, but what happens genetically to people when they live in the kind of sinful, dysfunctional, disoriented kind of environment, year after year, generation after generation? Does it affect lifespan? Does um, does addictive consumption of alcohol over generations and generations affect the gene pool? 
which therefore affects length of life. You, you understand how I'm setting it up? And so there are some that suggest the the deterioration of human society due to sin, where there was a minimal effect of that at the beginning, that further as you get into history, the more that genetically is affected, which shortens life. Now that's reasonable inferential speculation that has some scientific basis to it, but I, I'm not sure I would argue that necessarily, but it's a possibility. So that's that's part of a way to begin to think about that very, very important question. Because there's no doubt by the time you get to Abraham, people are not living as long. And by the time you get to Jesus, they're, they're, the average life of a first century AD person in the Mediterranean world was 45. 50 years old. It was unusual for somebody to be 70, almost unheard of for somebody to be 100. Today, New York Times had an article a couple of years ago, the fastest, proportionately, the fastest growing part of the American population is those over 100. And my wife, after I read my wife, I would look, he said, why do you want to live to be 100? You know, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, I, that's not one of my goals. I mean, we'll see what God has in mind, but that's not a goal I have. As I'm starting to get older, I'm thinking, I don't know about some of this. And I see my dad at 92. He's very sick and has dementia, you know. So you think, and he just says, I just want to go home. He doesn't want to live anymore. But that, I don't know what that relates to your question, but. Jim, uh, yeah. I had a, I was a, many years ago, a Bible study, and my teacher took a class from Howard Hendricks. And he, so did I. Yeah. I studied under him too. Yeah, and so, but he said that there was like he said the, the expanse around the Earth. That's what you know. And then it kept up to carbon fourteen. He was getting into the details of it. That's what Howard Edwards did. And he thinks that because of the expanse, that's why. And after the flood, that expanse fell with the rains and everything else. And then by Noah, that expanse wasn't there any longer. That's one of the theories. You can't mm-hmm. prove it that the water vapor that's discussed in Genesis 1 surrounded the planet Earth. And that the one, uh, remember, two sources of water for the flood, one was the deep cracking open and so on, was one of, that this, this was the source of the voluminous amount of water so that after the flood, that is gone and it affects the longevity and quality of life. Can you prove that? Not really. I mean, not into where you can absolutely sign it, but it, it's, it makes sense. It's part of that very significant change that happens on Earth, both tech, in terms of the tectonic, topographical things of the Earth itself, as well as the atmosphere. Possibly that's accurate. Joel? Really quick. I'm sorry. What was the sign of the mosaic covenant? Sabbath, Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. See, he wants to get 100 on the quiz next week. He's, <laughs> we're not going to finish this, but let me introduce a couple of things uh, in verse 18. Now this, there's something here I want you to observe. The sons of Noah, in verse 18 of chapter 9, sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then there's a parenthesis. Ham was the father of Canaan. 
Why is that an important piece of information? Because remember, the first people who studied this book were Jews. Why is the word Canaan important if you're a Jew? They're enemies. The enemies, the Canaanites. Who are the Canaanites, Joel? Uh, they're bad guys. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. The bad guys in what context? I mean, they occupied the covenant land that God had promised Abraham. So the text is telling us the Canaanites who will be, and depending on when you're reading this, are, or depending on when you're reading, were your enemies in God fulfilling his covenant promise to give you your land. God made three promises to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. Seed is a descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, etc. I'm going to give you land, and through you all the people in the world are going to be blessed. So this is really important. It's setting the people who were the first readers of this to understand Ham is the one who will father the Canaanite. From him will come a son named Canaan, and from Canaan will come all the Ites peoples. The Gergesites, the Hivites, the, remember all those Ites people? Ammonites and all those people. Yeah, they all come from Canaan. So that's an important piece of information. It's just a parenthesis. These sons, three, were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed or populated, depending on your translation. In other words, all, and this is important in 2016, all living humanity is a descendant of Ham or Shem or Japheth. If you're from Europe, if your descendants come from Europe, they are descendants of Japheth. I mean, I'll talk about some of that when we get into chapter 10, 11. That's just, it's just making a declared fact. Now, I'll introduce this, and then I've got to stop. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. Noah is the new Adam. He's a tiller of the soil. He's a farmer. He's tilling the garden. Now, not the Garden of Eden, but earth. And he planted a vineyard. And if you come back next week, you'll find out what happened as a result. Okay? All right, let me pray here. Lord, the book of the book of Genesis answers most of our major questions of why things are the way they are, in both a positive sense as well as uh, largely a negative sense. And we've seen again through the study that we've had of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, uh, the changes that came about as a result of the flood. Undeniably, major changes on the planet. Probably major changes in the atmosphere. But more significantly, changes in what's going on on the planet. A new hostility and gap terror and fear between humanity and the rest of your creation. And a, a, a new uh, lifestyle and, and diet. Humans were no longer vegetarians, only they're now carnivorous. And then more importantly, you institute a system of justice based on the value and worth you give to human beings as your image bearers. And then you make a promise that you will never again destroy the earth with a flood. 
And the sign of that is a rainbow. I see no reason, Lord, why every time we see a rainbow, we shouldn't remember this covenant. The Bible says you remember it. That's why you send it. And the, the kinds of things we're going to start studying next week as we get into chapter 9 and then 10 and 11, as we start to see that humanity still has a problem. That problem is sin. That problem is rebellion. And that problem is defying you. And so that's why chapter 12 is so important, because you choose one man, Abraham, and you declare that through that one man, you will bring a son, a Messiah, who will save the world. And so we're seeing, again, through the unfolding of the scriptures, that redemptive theme that is so central to understanding the Bible. The problem of humanity is acute. And no matter what you do, we can't solve it. So you have to do something. And that something that you do is you ultimately will send the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the Bible is headed. And for us on this side of the cross, that is the source of our salvation, our joy, our purpose, our meaning and contentment in life. Jesus changed everything. So we thank you for that. We see how unified the scriptures really are. We pray your blessing on these men. Help them in their work and all their responsibilities and in what they do. May they represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.